Church, we are in Psalms 116. Psalm 116, and looking at the, uh, well, really we'll look, look at this entire psalm, but uh, for the first portion, we're just going to read verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 116. And for the last several weeks, we have been knee-deep in wisdom. We looked at the rise and the fall of Solomon, and there we saw highlighted for us the, the continued truth that man cannot keep God's law, right? And so, and only in submitting ourselves to the God-man, Christ Jesus, can we find true and lasting wisdom. So there we saw that for all of his wisdom, Solomon still succumbed to the brokenness of his flesh, we continued to extrapolate that idea, though, out over the last two weeks as we looked at Proverbs, seeing that true wisdom is applying knowledge in the praise of the Lord. And then that uh, last week we saw that the, the right application of wisdom is to walk with Christ. And now uh, over... This last week, we've read through in our reading guide, if you've followed along with us, we've read through Ecclesiastes. And in just a few days, we've begun Second Chronicles over the last couple of days. However, today I want to turn our attention, as I've already said, particularly to the Psalms. And we actually won't be reading this Psalm, Psalm 116, until Tuesday in our reading plan. But I couldn't let us read through it without preaching it to us, because I love the truths that this psalm uh, brings to our hearts and our minds. So today we're going to be challenged to take a hard look at, in the in the spiritual mirror and analyze what it is that our life is bearing witness to. That as we go about our day-to-day -day activities, as we, as we lead our families, as we serve our families, as we uh, talk to people at work, as we talk to people at the grocery store, as we do our things about our life and we, we play on our ball teams and we, we do all these different things, what is our life bearing witness to? And then we'll also be challenged to analyze and think about how grace radically changes both our worldview and our day-to-day -day living. So I want to ask you, church, to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from Psalm 116, verses 1 through 9. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid a hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. <clears throat> the Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word, we read its truths. I pray that these truths would challenge us. For the believer, I pray that it would, your word would convict, that it would encourage, 
that it would, uh, that it would move our feet. God, for those who do not know you as Lord, I pray that your word would pierce the heart, move to repentance, and that you would use your word to draw them to yourself. God, bless our time in your word this morning. Bless the reading of your word for the edification of your church and the glorification of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So, how do we respond to God's answering of our prayers? How do we respond to his steadfast love and faithfulness? How do we respond to his covenant grace? That's one of the primary challenges of this psalm. And we are forced to ask ourselves these questions right within the opening lines. Look again to verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord. So an emphatic statement of devotion and covenant love to the Lord. That's the, the covenant name Yahweh there. Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. So what has prompted this love for the Lord? His steadfast love and faithfulness. Because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. So this isn't just a fleeting emotion. It's not just uh, something that we're feeling now, an excitement. But this is a dedication of life, a commitment, a covenant. So the opening statement of this song is a strong statement of love and affection of the Lord for his tender loving care. And this is intended to be a congregational song, a song in which the people are singing this together of their devotion and their love for the Lord. And it forces each member who sings this song to respond to God's gracious action in our lives. The prompting of the praise is the grace of God's having heard their cries and responded with grace. And so as, as we look at this, one of the primary things that jumps out to us is God should be God's action here in the psalm. And it's a grace that we too often take for granted. It's the first point on your outline this morning. It's simple, but profound. Simple, but yet easily forgotten and taken for granted. God hears us. I mean, and in your mind, you might be saying to yourself, yeah, that is pretty simple, right? And it's just kind of one of those things that we know because we, we pray often and frequently, hopefully. And we seek out to him. We cry out to him. But how often do we take for granted that he hears those prayers? One of the most humbling truths of Scripture is that God spoke, right? Giving us his word that we might know him and worship him. And so equally as humbling is the truth that not only has God spoken, but he hears us. So our creator and Lord is also our sustainer who not only knows our every need, but hears our pleas. God hears and responds to the cries of his people. So again, not only has he spoken and taken the first step by giving us knowledge of himself, through his word, 
but he also hears our cries to him. We do not simply have a God that desires to be heard, but a God who desires to hear us. And I want us to be cautious here, though, because as incredible as this thought is, as great as it is for us to hold tightly to that idea and, and think uh, lofty thoughts about it, I want us to be cautious because I think we see too many who take truth such as this and overemphasize them to the point of making God out to be all about us. And so this is not about God reaching down to act on our behalf simply to fulfill the desires and demands of our flesh. <laughs> not, not at all. This is about God showing his character of grace, showing steadfast, loving faithfulness out of an abundance of grace to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So equally as important, again, one of those first questions to ask is, is um, in looking to this psalm, one of the things that we're challenged with is how do we respond when God answers our prayers? Well, equally as important to consider is how do we respond when he doesn't? And do we see that as the Lord withholding something from us? Or do we see that too as a blessing of his grace? Again, God hears and responds to the cries of his people not just to act on our behalf or fulfill our desires, but he does so out of his showings, his steadfast, loving faithfulness and abundance of grace to those who love him and are calling to his purpose. So God hears his people and acts in a way that brings greater glory to his name. And this is a consistent attribute that we see of God throughout Scripture. Not just described or written of in stories, but plainly stated by God himself. Consider what we read in Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham. So again, rooting himself in his past covenant faithfully. I appeared to Abraham. He spoke to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them. To give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God's action is based on, first, prompted by his own loving kindness. Secondly, we see it as a complete act of grace. And thirdly, we see it's in complete consistency with his covenant faithfulness. And so what initiation of God's action depends on us? You didn't see it in there. 
He said, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. So I spoke to them. I established the covenant with them. And so I have heard the groaning of my people, of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And so here in this psalm, we see this declaration of love for the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. So because the Lord has shown himself steadfastly faithful, and he's heard me even here in the pleas from the pit, I love the Lord. So again, we see here, God acts in complete faithfulness to his covenant, hearing his people and providing them rescue. And after rescuing them from slavery, what does God then do? He brings them to Mount Sinai. So just as he spoke to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, he then speaks through Moses and he gives them his law that they might worship him and glorify him and glorify his name in their hearts and across creation. So Moses reminds the people in Deuteronomy 7 of the exact posture that they are to maintain. In Deuteronomy 7, we read Moses saying this and reminding the people of this as they're preparing to enter the land. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So reminding them is the Lord's choosing of them and that's why they are holy. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So those many years later, Moses is reminding the people that it is God's grace and loving, steadfast kindness that he has set upon you that you are in this position. And so it is, church, for all those who come to know the Lord by grace, through faith. Not because of our strength or standing, but wholly because of his grace does he draw us to himself. So how are we to live in light of this? In light of the fact that God not only has spoken, but that God hears. We're to live in constant, humble praise. It's the next point on your outline. Those who know the Lord ought to live in constant praise of his grace. And that's the idea here of this psalm. We who have come to know the Lord are in constant view of his grace. We can't help but look and see the imprints, the fingerprints of God's grace on our life everywhere. We can't help but live day to day and see those interactions no longer as benign. But instead we see how is God constantly working out his grace amongst me that he might make himself known through me and might greater glorify his name in my heart? We who have come to know the Lord are in constant view of his grace. Therefore, our life is to be lived in a posture of praise. So what do I mean by that? We un only come to know the Lord by grace through faith and again, in doing so, we begin to see everything through the lens of his grace. 
we can't help but be in a state of awe at all that God has done and is doing. Now you might say to yourself, I don't find myself in that state, maybe even frequently, let alone constantly. And to that I would say there are definitely times when the broken sinfulness of this world overwhelms us. It can settle over us like a fog that prevents us from seeing a foot in front of us, let alone the hope of all the grace that lies ahead. But notice how the celebration of this psalm is that the Lord hears us from the depths of the fog. Continue in verse 3. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. So this isn't from the mountaintop. This is looking back on what God did in the valley. And saying, look, I was near death. Verse 4. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. So again, those who know the Lord are to live in constant praise of His grace. But again, sometimes there's that we can allow a fog of sin and brokenness just to settle on us and, and block our view of those graces that we see constantly. But what if my dad died? What if my son was taken from me? I always seem to be two steps behind on money. Or what if this? What if that? Or what if the snares of death encompassed you? Or the pangs of Sheol laid hold and you suffered distress and anguish? Just because we can't see or grasp God's grace at work in the present does not mean that it's not there. Nor does it negate what he has already shown you. So again, notice how this is is looking back and praising God's faithfulness and saying, I love the Lord because he heard. So I was in a desperate position and he heard me. And I know that more desperate positions lie ahead. And so what can I know with the utmost confidence? That he will hear me again. Why can I know that? Because he's heard me before and shown himself faithful time and time again. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. As I was reading this psalm in preparation for today, I couldn't help but be reminded of Augustine's Confessions. I've referenced it many times before, and I'm sure I'll reference it many times again, but it's a book in which uh, Augustine uh, is looking back on his life and seeing God's providential grace and seeing how God has been at work in his life all along. And I want to read you this quote from Augustine's Confessions. He says, Allow me this, I beg you. He's speaking to the Lord here. And grant me to trace today the twisting arguments that led me astray at the past time. So just to give us some context, he's talking about uh, how he's looking back on his days of youth and how frequently he was led astray, though his mother tried to preach the gospel to him. And uh, though he was prayed for, he followed after the desires of his heart, the desires of the flesh, and, and followed after many things, went down many trails. And so he says, allow me this, God, I beg you, and grant me to trace today the twisting arguments that led me astray at that past time, shouting my joy to you as I offer you this sacrifice. 
right? So he's looking back on where he was, and now he's offering the sacrifice of praise to the Lord for where he is, where the Lord's brought him now. Without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own downfall? And he goes on to say, what kind of human being is anyone who is human and nothing more? Let the strong and mighty laugh at us then, but let us weak and needy folk confess to you. He hears, he sees, he knows. This is me talking now, right? So he hears, he sees, he knows, and he acts to make his name great in our hearts that we might openly and unashamedly praise his name among all. That's the prompting here. Is that I was near death and I cried out, oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And now what do I get to say? I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. We continue reading there in verse five. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So we ought to live in a constant awe and praise of God's mercy and grace. Why? Because only those who have experienced the mercy and grace of God can bear witness to it. However, never does God's goodness seem more tangible, more close, more needed than in times of distress when we are brought low. I was reminded of this just a few days ago. We had got to have dinner with one of my dear friends in Peru who uh, had been my translator many times before. And she met up with us for dinner one night and she was telling me about some recent uh, things that had happened over the last several years since I had last seen her and, and some uh, distressing things that happened in her life. And this was her exact sentiment was that never do the graces of God seem more tangible, more real, than when we have nothing. Because when we have nothing in this life, it helps us realize that all we have is Christ. I want to encourage you now with this next thought on your outline. When our souls are restless, let us return to our only place of rest. And so, of course, this challenges us to consider where are you seeking rest right now? Where are you seeking peace? Where are you seeking joy? These are the questions which we must challenge and preach to our own hearts over and over again. So don't let your soul be fooled into thinking it's found rest in something of this world. As we were talking to Pastor Julio, who's the, the pastor of the church that we're working with there in Peru, uh, that first day that we got to meet up with him and we were talking and he paused and he said, many people come here from the States and they're overwhelmed and looking at the poverty because the area in which we work is on the outskirts of Lima uh, and it's very much type of uh, what you had seen, what you've seen maybe from photos of Brazil, the favela, uh, just uh, shanty type houses set up with whatever they can find. Um, and so he said, many folks come here and they're overwhelmed by poverty and they're, they're moved to compassion and emotional at that. 
And he said, I, I tell them, don't look at this and see poverty. This is not poverty, he says. He says, this, these people have jobs. They have homes, electricity. He said, the real poverty here that you need to be moved to compassion by, the real poverty that you need to see is spiritual. And that the need here isn't more money. The answer here isn't a better home. The answer here is Christ. I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 11. Because this is the same sentiment carried over here from this psalm that we see Jesus speak to here in Matthew 11. So this is immediately after Jesus has spoken woe to unrepentant cities. And we move here to verse 25 of Matthew 11. And we read, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses, rather, excuse me, anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The psalmist here is declaring that in this moment of great burden, O oh my soul, return to your place of rest. And the only place, church, which we can find rest and hope and sustaining joy and peace is in Christ. The only place where we can come to know the Father as He's revealed Himself through His Word, through His Son, the Word made flesh, is through a relationship with Christ. So how do we then live in light of God's abundant grace? I'll turn your attention back again to Psalm 116. So the prayer that we ended with there in verse 7, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. This is the plea for the, for the own soul of the psalmist and for the congregation to say these together. So then how do we live in light of God's abundant grace? As we return to that place of rest, as we come to know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the works of Christ on the cross, how do we as his church live in light of these realities? Verse 8, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So the purpose that the psalmist sees here is that God answered this prayer, delivered him in this time, not so that he may just keep it to himself, be comfortable in the Lord, but that he may walk openly before the Lord in the land of the living. That he may be a walking testimony of grace. And that's the next point on your outline. Those who have experienced God's grace 
are to be living testimonies of grace. So don't allow your flesh to make you a walking testimony of yourself. Don't allow your flesh to make you into a walking testimony that is all about you. If someone were to take your testimony from Monday to Tuesday and Thursday to Saturday, so I'm cutting out Wednesday and Sunday there, right? If they take Monday to Tuesday and Thursday to Saturday, would they hear of God's grace in your life? Would the saint be moved to conviction to praise God? So what I mean by that is, would your brothers and sisters, if they took your testimony from Monday to Tuesday and Thursday to Saturday, would they be moved to further praise of God's grace, to echo together, communally, the grace of God, and to walk before him in the land of the living? Would the lost be moved to repentance? So if your brothers and sisters are moved to conviction and praise, would the lost, in hearing your testimony from Monday to Tuesday and Thursday to Saturday, would the lost be moved to repentance? Or would they simply be moved to eat, drink, and take pleasure in their toil? This is the sentiment of Ecclesiastes. If you're keeping up in the reading plan, that's what we read this last week. And that's what we read in Paul's message to the Corinthians. That if there is no hope in Christ's resurrection, no hope beyond this life, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, Paul says. Is that the testimony we live from Monday to Tuesday, Thursday to Saturday? Or do we live a testimony of enduring rest in him who has lavished his grace upon us? Do we walk before the Lord in the land of the living? Because this is our sacrifice of praise. Not a sacrifice of blood of bulls or goats, but the sacrifice of a life lived in praise to God. And that's what we read, the sentiment we read as we continue reading this psalm, picking back up in verse 10. I believed even when I spoke I am greatly afflicted. So even when I was speaking of my affliction and I was within the midst of it and I was feeling it, I believed. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? So what should I give? What should I bring? What shall I offer up? Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So what shall I lift up? What shall I bring? Guess what? I have nothing to bring but that which he has given me. And that's my salvation. The conclusion of Ecclesiastes going from let us eat and drink is this. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter of all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The next point there on your outline is that our lives are to be living sacrifices of praise. What shall we render to the Lord? We have nothing that we can give. So all that we have to render to lift up is the cup of salvation which he has given us. 
And we reciprocate that in a life lived in sacrifice of praise to him. And that is what makes these last few verses that we haven't read yet so sweet, church. And I pray that I get to preach these last few verses that we're about to read at your funeral. And I know at first blush that might seem maybe morbid or dark or, or maybe even selfish, right? But I truly don't mean, mean it in that way. I just want to say, make me preach these verses at your funeral. Because I, I first heard them preached just a few years ago, shortly after the Lord brought my family and I here to Southside, a dear friend of mine, Brother Wayne Thomas, passed away in his old age. I've got a small collection of his books in my office that his wife gave me. And so from time to time, when I, I reference one, I get to read some of his notes and uh, just smile and give, give thanks to God for his grace for letting me know Brother Wayne because he loved God's word. He loved the church. He loved to teach Sunday school as long as he physically could uh, until he wasn't able to do so anymore. And I pray that I get to preach these verses in that same way at your funeral. Pick back up in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So I will live a public life of declaration in paying my vows of praise to the Lord. Verse 19, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So I will praise you in your midst. I will praise you in the courts. Praise the Lord. You cannot be a living sacrifice, though, if you have not surrendered your life to him. And that's the idea here, is that those who have surrendered their life to him, those who can be called his saints, his holy ones, precious in the sight of the Lord is their death. Why? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and praising his glorious name. But to be present in the body is to have the obligation, the vow, to continue to be a living sacrifice of praise. To say, oh Lord, I am your servant. And so I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on your name as long as you have me here. And so the challenge here, as we've seen it, is for us to remember and to know just to do a little recap here, is that God hears us. Not only has God spoke that we may know him and be drawn closer to him, but that God hears us. The next challenge that we were given there on your outline is that those who know the Lord ought to live in constant praise of his grace. So as he has graced us to know him, he has graced us to be heard by him, our response to that is a life lived in constant praise of that grace. So we are constantly, with the way we act, with the way we talk, with how we treat one another, with how we treat those who do not know the Lord, we are to live in constant praise of His grace. From the courts of the house of the Lord and in the midst of Jerusalem, we say, 
praise the Lord. Continuing there, then we saw that when our souls are restless, because there are times when that fog settles in, there are times when we can't see that grace, but our prayer must be that when our souls are restless, let us return to our only place of rest. As we saw that, then we moved to see that those who have experienced God's grace are therefore to be living testimonies of grace, trophies of grace on display. The contradiction there is that oftentimes a trophy is something that we get for something we earned. Here the trophy is God's grace. And then lastly, we saw therefore that all of this means that our lives are to be a living sacrifice of praise, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Because this is what he desires more than the blood of bulls and goats. This is what he desires more than anything that we could give him is that we would say, I've got nothing to render to you other than the cup of salvation which you have given to me. So the challenge is, how are you doing that? And then the other challenge is, if you have not received that cup of salvation because you have held tightly to your flesh, the challenge for you is to repent and believe that you may render a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. Let's pray, church. God, we love you. Pray now that you would help us to live out these truths, that as we leave this place, that we would be a constant living sacrifice of praise to your name. So that whether we are in this place, in our house, at the grocery store, at work, wherever, at the ball field, that we would be a walking billboard of your grace. So that others can't talk to us without hearing of your grace. Others can't look at us without thinking of your grace. Let it be so of your church. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who does not know this grace, that you continue to draw them to yourself, move them to repentance and surrendering their life to you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.